The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. April 20th, 2017. Thank you very much for listening and for shopping through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. The famous words, we have met the enemy and he is us, were first spoken in a newspaper comic strip long ago. Today, sadly and bizarrely, the question is, which is scarier, North Korea or the U.S.? A lot of people were worried last week that North Korea might set off a thermonuclear war. Some were even more worried about the confused U.S. policy on North Korea and how we were conducting that policy and how that, too, might set off a cataclysmic war. On April 8th, we were told by a U.S. Navy spokesman that the aircraft carrier USS Carl Vinson was headed toward North Korea. On April 9th, the next day, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster confirmed that. On April 11th, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer and Defense Secretary James Mattis reconfirmed it. Trump told reporters, we are sending an armada, and none of that was true. The president, the Navy spokesman, the National Security Advisor, the Defense Secretary, and the White House spokesman were all either confused or lying. Defense Secretary Mattis even went so far to say that the Carl Vinson had been pulled out of a military exercise with Australia to make a special visit to North Korea and was headed north. Did he not know that the Vinson was actually headed south to Australia for that exercise when he said that? Did he not know where the ship was heading, or was he lying about it? Those appear to be our only two choices for an answer. Yesterday, April 19th, White House spokesman said the U.S. ships are headed for North Korea, adding, that's a fact. By that time, the USS Carl Vinson had changed course and was finally, actually headed for North Korea, although as of last night, it was still a thousand miles away. And all of this, while both Vice President Pence and Trump had suddenly softened their tone on North Korea. Tuesday, Pence said there's a chance for a diplomatic solution. Trump said of Kim Jong-un, hopefully he wants peace. But then the next day, Pence's words turned tough again, with him saying, we will defeat any attack. And then the U.S. military was reportedly considering a policy of shooting down North Korea's test missiles, which would likely give Kim Jong-un the justification he wants for a military response. Because mixed signals about our military intentions could set off a war, it's something previous presidential administrations have worked to avoid. President Kennedy made it a point to unify the military and political messages coming out of Washington during the Cuban Missile Crisis. A wrong signal to a hair-trigger leader like Kim Jong-un could set off a war. And this isn't the first time for such confusion about foreign policy in the Trump administration. Last week, a spokesman for U.S. Central Command said that the 59 missiles fired at ISIS in Syria the week before was an execution of the Trump campaign promise to kick the S out of ISIS, adding, and that's what we're doing. CENTCOM quickly announced that that spokesman had made an unauthorized statement to the press and that he does not speak for the professionals at Central Command. Keep your fingers crossed or whatever you think will work. Vice President Mike Pence glared at North Korea from this side of the DMC, and North Korea talked of thermonuclear war. No one questions the North's ability to take out 41 million people in the South Korean city that's as close to the demilitarized zone as Baltimore is to D.C. 
and its ability to take out the tens of thousands of American soldiers there, leaving our commander-in-chief no option but to retaliate soundly if that happened. But when it comes to an attack on the U.S. mainland, North Korea's bark appears to be worse than its bite. Of the types of missiles North Korea has tried to launch, one fails for every one that succeeds. On the longer-range missiles, the failure rate is 88%. As for that impressive array of big, scary missiles we see when North Korea is celebrating one anniversary or another, a Chinese missile expert says those appear to be hollow mock-ups. Sure, they looked like ICBMs, but they looked very much like the Chinese Donfeng 31A and very much like the new Russian Topol M long-range missile. And to the world's knowledge, neither China nor Russia have given or sold their missiles to anyone else. Neither wants their missile secrets revealed, and neither certainly trusts North Korea with those missiles. So considering the stage prop missiles on parade and the failure rate of half to 90% of North Korea's missile launches, including a dud this past weekend, the second in a row, the bark may be worse than the bite. Of course, it may also be that North Korea's failure rate is due to the U.S. military's focus on hacking and sabotage. In relatively recent years, the U.S. discovered that the best missile defense system is one that keeps the enemy's missiles from ever getting very far off the ground. None of this is to suggest that we shouldn't pay attention to North Korea, nor to suggest we don't do everything we can to keep it from getting better at all things world-threatening. A frustrated Kim Jong-un may take out his frustration over that failed launch at any time with a sixth illegal underground nuclear test. Chinese scientists are nervous and unhappy about this, fearful of what North Korea's continual pumping of radioactivity into the ground will do to the water and land that they share. China is calling on both North Korea and the U.S. to cool it. Japan is still conducting evacuation drills. But the Trump administration seems to be on a mission, from Mike Pence glaring at North Korea to calling even the latest failed missile launch a provocation. Behave, said Trump this week after his administration had made it clear all options are on the table, including a preemptive strike. But North Korea tried to launch a missile anyway, and when it failed, the U.S. did nothing. Kim Jong-un, meanwhile, continues to threaten full-scale war. And then, literally out of the blue, came the mother of all bombs. MOAB, by the way, actually stands for Massive Ordnance Air Blast. But you can see how it got its nickname, since it's the most powerful bomb known to man short of a nuclear device. And our top military commander in Afghanistan ordered using it for the first time ever to take out an ISIS unit of nearly 100 fighters with a massive bomb priced at $16 million. Why this weapon? Why now? Why there? General John Nicholson says it was the right weapon against the right target. It was the right time to use it tactically. The MOEB is so powerful it can even kill ISIS fighters inside those treacherous underground Afghan caves where they like to hide. But on his Asia trip, Vice President Pence made it clear using the mother of all bombs was also a message to North Korea. Now, the Trump administration is, or isn't, ready to take on Iran. One day after Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said Iran has been abiding by the nuclear agreement, of which Trump's been so critical, and Tillerson recommended that Congress avoid new sanctions against Iran, Tillerson then called that Iran deal a failure and said Trump's thinking about pulling out of that seven-nation agreement. 
Tillerson also then accused Iran of posing a major global threat with its sponsorship of terrorism against Israel and in Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and Yemen. And Tillerson said all of this just a month before elections in Iran with comments that could put Iranian voters in a more radical, anti-American mood and prompt them to elect an even more radical government than the one they have now. Today, Tillerson has once again softened his position. Stay tuned until it changes again. The Trump family spent Easter weekend at their estate overlooking his golf resort for the well-to-do in West Palm Beach, Florida. He played golf again after slamming Obama for playing it less. Trump is on track to spend more in a year on getaways than Obama spent in eight years. Easter was Trump's seventh trip to Mar-a-Lago in the 13 weekends of his presidency so far at a cost of $1 to $4 million per trip. If it's closer to $4 million, Trump has so far spent enough on travel to cover 4,000 Medicaid patients for a year, $25 million so far. That money could have covered Meals on Wheels for 9,000 people for a year. It could have kept the federal program for the homeless afloat for six years. All are programs Trump's pledged to cut. And once again, he spent the weekend at his Florida resort under the watchful eye of the Coast Guard, which steps up patrols along two bodies of water, the Atlantic Ocean on one side of Mar-a-Lago and Florida's intercoastal waterway on the other. That's ironic, too, since these patrols are strapping the budget of an agency whose budget Trump's proposed cutting by $1.3 billion. While Trump boosts spending for all the other branches of our military, he's proposed cutting funding for the one doing double duty protecting him. In spite of Trump's proposed $54 billion increase in defense spending, he's proposed cutting the Coast Guard's budget by 14%. Meanwhile, the bills for the Coast Guard and American taxpayers are piling up. Mar-a-Lago is where Trump and key advisors made the decision to fire five dozen missiles into that airbase in Syria two weeks ago. Maybe you've seen the photo. The White House is quite proud of it. At first glance, the photo has the same layout and seriousness of that famous photo from the Obama Situation Room that ordered the raid to kill Osama bin Laden. But as similar as those photos seem, the differences are glaring. For one thing, this makeshift situation room is at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, not in the White House. For another, Trump's choice of key advisors for that meeting-slash-photo op left many scratching their heads. Why, they asked, do we not see the head of Central Intelligence or the Director of National Intelligence? Why were there no military officials in that room? We now know the answer. For one, Trump's CIA Director Mike Pompeo was giving a speech that night elsewhere to a financial group. Neither that CIA director nor the director of national intelligence even knew the decision was being made. But Trump's son-in-law knew because he was at the meeting, along with, bizarrely, the Treasury Secretary and the Commerce Secretary. No generals were in the room, but Stephen Mnuchin and Wilbur Ross were there. The business and financial community were well represented in that photo, but military and intelligence officials were not. White House spokesman Sean Spicer was there, too, along with former Breitbart publisher Steve Bannon. So although that photo, of which the White House is so proud, looks similar at first glance to the historic Obama administration photo, it couldn't be more different, or confusing, or misleading. We also now know that nearly half the people killed in that U.S. airstrike on Syria, that killed 94 people, nearly half of them were civilians, and that one of the buildings destroyed was a mosque, according to Human Rights Watch. 
The U.S. military denies targeting the mosque. Human Rights Watch responds, U.S. authorities need to start doing their homework before they launch attacks and make sure it doesn't happen again. In December, Obama was still president, but Trump was the president-elect. And it was during that transition that we first saw a summary of findings by a former British spy who'd been doing research on Trump's relationship with Russia on behalf of a group working to elect Hillary Clinton. It was a summary of a dossier on Trump that had supposedly been gathered by Russian intelligence. It was also in December that CNN reported that both Obama and Trump had been given copies of that ex-British spy summary. There were doubts about the truthfulness of that summary because of some of its salacious details. It was in December that BuzzFeed was soundly criticized for publishing the finer points of that summary, including that Trump, while visiting Russia for a Miss Universe pageant, paid hookers to perform for him in a Russian hotel room that was under Russian government surveillance. The summary was, after all, considered uncorroborated, and its veracity was in doubt because of the kinky stuff. And then came January and word that the FBI had been able to corroborate some of the other claims in that former British spy's summary. The Bureau back then said it hadn't bothered to look into the sex stuff, but had been able to confirm a few things. But the FBI may have confirmed more than just a few things, and they've been investigating that summary for longer than we knew. A source now tells CNN that even before December of last year, the FBI used some of what it had been able to confirm from that ex-British spies report, used it to convince the government's secretive Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to approve warrants to monitor Trump's then-foreign policy advisor Carter Page. In fact, it was that ex-British spy summary that moved the FBI to ask the FISA court for the very first Carter Page surveillance warrant. And in recent weeks, FBI Director James Comey has been showing that to members of Congress who are investigating Russian influence on the election campaign and whether Team Trump colluded with the Russians in that mischief. The summary, no longer uncorroborated, says Carter Page met with top Russian officials on behalf of the Trump campaign and that he made deals with those Russian officials offering a softening of U.S. sanctions against Russia for its aggression in Ukraine. Carter Page denies all this, although he did go to Russia last July and did give a speech there that criticized U.S. policy on Russia. That, too, that speech made the FBI sit up and take notice. Page says he was speaking for himself, not the Trump campaign, when he gave that anti-American government policy speech in Russia. Page says he did nothing wrong, nothing illegal, and that the accusations in that summary are politically motivated. But the FBI says it is now confirmed much of what's in that summary. It had no choice if it expected the FISA court to approve its request for that surveillance warrant. The court requires the FBI to show probable cause. And it did. And today there is yet another connection between the Trump campaign and Russia. That connection is the younger brother of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, another billionaire from her family who spent a lot of money on conservative causes, including battling abortion and gay rights. He is Eric Prince, the founder of the controversial military contractor once infamously known as Blackwater. We now know that Prince used the back entrance of Trump Tower to avoid reporters during the transition. Around the time, he also traveled to an island in the Indian Ocean on the other side of the world as a self-described envoy for Donald Trump to meet with an emissary for Vladimir Putin. That meeting was held nine days before Trump's inauguration, according to FBI investigators. 
The White House says it is not aware of any meetings and that Prince had no role in the transition, even though we now know otherwise. There are now 18 people associated with Trump who have ties to Russia, and a handful have been caught lying about their contacts, as documented here before. By late last summer, U.S. intelligence agencies were seeing what European intelligence agencies had been seeing for nearly a year, Trump associates having face-to-face meetings with Russian agents in cities across Europe. Watch out, wrote one of those agents. You should be wary of this, he said, adding, there's something not right here. Spy agencies in Britain, Germany, France, the Netherlands, Australia, Poland, and Estonia were seeing suspicious interactions between Trump and suspected Russian agents nearly a year before the election. And last summer, after comparing notes with other European countries and seeing a pattern, the British passed along what they knew to our then-CIA director, John Brennan, and they didn't do it in a memo. The head of Britain's National Security Agency, the GCHQ, met personally and privately with the head of our CIA to give him the heads up. After some checking on his own, by his own agents, CIA Chief Brennan immediately took what he had learned to key members of Congress, especially the leaders of its oversight committees. And he conveyed what he knew, again, in person and privately, to those Congress people. Because it involved American citizens, that investigation was then handed off to the FBI. The Guardian newspaper, which reported all of this, quoted a source as saying, they now have specific concrete evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russian agents in the publication of emails stolen from the Democrats and the Clinton campaign throughout the campaign. Why did U.S. intelligence not see what seven European countries were seeing? Partly because of a law that bans our intelligence agencies from looking at U.S. citizens' communications without a warrant. And all of this, we're told, will likely be part of the investigations of collusion that continue at the FBI and in the House and Senate Intelligence Committee investigations, which continue this week. A new Gallup poll shows that the nation is losing its confidence in Trump. In February, more than half of us said Trump can bring about changes this country needs. In March, that number had dropped by seven points. Faith in his ability to manage the government fell three points to 41%. On the question of honesty and trust, Trump's tumbled 6%. Now barely over a third of us even trust him. And fewer than half of us believe he keeps his promises. That belief fell 17 points from February to March. There appear to be good reasons for this erosion of trust. Those reasons... An update on Arkansas's execution spree and more, plus commentary from Bob Seska. After this. A smooth, clean shave from a blade that feels expensive but comes straight to my door at half the cost of the big-name brands. That's what I love about shaving with products from Harry's. From the hefty, balanced handle that fits your hand to the precision-engineered five-blade cartridges that come with a trimmer blade, a lubricating strip, and a travel cover, plus Harry's rich, lathering shave gel. It all started when two ordinary guys named Jeff and Andy got tired of getting ripped off on blade prices. One big company in particular, you know who I mean, relentlessly jacked their prices and made a fortune while we all spent a fortune. Jeff and Andy wanted to fix shaving, so they started by cutting out the middlemen. They bought their own factory, one that's been making blades for over a century, so now they can ship top-quality blades directly to you. The result? Quality products at your door for half of what you've been paying. Half. 
And that's the Harry story. Be part of it. Jeff and Andy are so confident. You'll love their products. They want you to go to harrys.com right now to try their new shave set free. It's a $13 value, but all you pay is the shipping. Sign up at harrys.com slash R-E-L-M. And because you listen to this newscast, Jeff and Andy will even throw in a free post-shave balm. But only if you log on to harrys.com slash R-E-L-M. I love WikiLeaks, shouted candidate Trump last October. Last week, his CIA director, Mike Pompeo, gave his first speech and called WikiLeaks a hostile agent. It was yet another reversal of Trump policy. Trump and his supporters point proudly to these reversals as signs of a flexible president. Trump critics say it's evidence he regularly speaks without knowing the facts that he flip-flops or that he has no idea what he's doing or saying. Last summer, Trump was saying the relationship with Russia is great. I can get along with those people and get along with them well, he said. Last week it was, we're not getting along with Russia at all. We may be at an all-time low. In the campaign, Trump vowed to declare China a currency manipulator on day one. Last week, he said China is not a currency manipulator. For years, Trump was staunchly against attacking the Syrian military if and when, even if it had gassed its own people. 59 Tomahawk missiles fired into a Syrian airbase made it clear Trump had changed his mind on that. The campaigning Trump called NATO obsolete and threatened to reduce U.S. support for NATO. Last week, he said NATO is, quote, no longer obsolete. Trump promised Mexico would pay for the border wall. With Mexico saying it won't, he admitted U.S. taxpayers might have to pick up the initial expense on the promise he'd get the money back somehow from Mexico, perhaps through an import tax that would drive up prices in this country. Trump wanted to get rid of the U.S. government's import-export bank. Last week, he said, actually, it's a very good thing. Trump also said he would release his taxes once the IRS audits are over after taking office. One of his mouthpieces, Kellyanne Conway, proudly told a reporter that Trump would not release his tax returns since the American people had proven they don't care by electing him anyway. But it was the Electoral College that made Trump president, certainly not the popular vote. And today, 74% of Americans surveyed said they need to see the president's taxes. Tens of thousands of Americans took to the streets in 180 towns in 48 states Saturday to protest Trump's hiding of his tax returns. Trump, who's already proven his difficulty with crowd numbers, called them small protests by paid protesters. It was, in fact, the biggest anti-Trump protest since the Women's March the day after he was inaugurated. As many working families struggled to file their returns by this year's deadline, Trump's response to the protesters' demands was a tweet that included the sentence, The election's over. He is the first president since Nixon not to make public his personal finances, which many believe would show that Trump has serious conflicts of interest and financial deals with foreign governments that could affect presidential policies here and around the world. Many believe the tax returns would be key evidence in the investigation of collusion between Trump and Russia. The top Democrat on the Senate Finance Committee compares Trump's secrecy to, quote, a teenager trying to hide a lousy report card. After losing a billion dollars in his casinos in 1995, Trump could legally avoid taxes on his income for the 17 years that followed, including that sweet TV money for Celebrity Apprentice. Protest organizers are urging concerned citizens to make their concerns known to their senators and representatives and to urge those lawmakers to follow the money. 
it's no surprise then that Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin now says the Trump administration won't push for tax reform until late this summer at the earliest. It's no surprise since Trump's own tax controversy still stands in the way and since Congress wasn't even able to pass its long-hoped-for repeal and replace of Obamacare. Tax reform was near the top of Trump's list when he took office, but Republican leaders and his own advisors urged him to take on health care first instead. When that effort went down in flames, Trump vowed to move on to tax reform, but now seems to have reversed himself several times on that. Lately, Trump's been saying he wants tax reform by the end of August, but Steve Mnuchin says that likely won't happen. And last week, Trump switched it up again, saying he'd like to take another shot at health care first. And what do Americans think about tax reform? A new Gallup poll says two-thirds of us think corporations and the wealthy are not paying enough, not paying their fair shares. The poll also found that nearly half of us think the poor pay too much toward taxes. Just over half think the middle class also pays too much. It was a good week, though, to be Ivanka Trump. Now comfortably settled into her office in the west wing of the White House, the first daughter landed a sweet deal with China. Her fashion line was already a hit in China, topping $166 million in 2016. But this was an especially good week for Ivanka as the Chinese government gave approval to three trademarks of hers on jewelry, handbags, and spas, giving her a monopoly on her fashions in the country that has the world's second biggest economy. And she got those trademark approvals on the same day she sat next to Chinese President Xi Jinping during dinner at her dad's Mar-a-Lago resort. It was another glaring example of the conflicts of interest in this administration, the Trumps simultaneously making their own business moves while conducting foreign policy for the people of the United States. The new president, who turned China into a curse word during the campaign, now speaks kindly of China and its leader. That dinner, by the way, is the same one at which Trump says he told the Chinese president he just shot 59 missiles into Syria over a piece of what Trump calls beautiful chocolate cake. And that resort has also made record profits with the new president there so often as an added attraction. Trump's presidency has been good for business, especially the Trump brand. Other American businesses hope to benefit, especially since Trump promised to reduce the number of government regulations they'd have to obey. When the Commerce Department opened a web page to get comments from business, it got 175 responses. The most suggestions involved ripping away clean air and water rules from the EPA. Finishing second were suggestions at dumping regulations that protect workers. Government contractors asked that Trump scrap the rule that requires them to provide paid sick leave. The Chamber of Commerce asked that he dump the rule that requires them to report worker injuries. BP, the oil company that fouled the Gulf of Mexico, asked for longer leases on its drilling in the Gulf. And BP made that request even as its oil was spilling in Puerto Bay, Alaska. Business already has Trump's ear. He's already issued several executive orders to clear government regulations from the books and signed 13 resolutions from Congress condemning rules from the Obama administration aimed at protecting air, water, and workers. Five dozen women and children who fled to this country to escape the violence and danger in their Central American homes are being deported immediately. That was the ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court Monday, clearing the way for the Trump administration to continue its mass deportation of people, especially Latin American people, 
from seeking asylum here. Meanwhile, in terms of immigration, the arrests of undocumented residents is up by 33% since Trump took office. And despite promises from both Trump and his Homeland Security Secretary, the number of people with no criminal records arrested by immigration since Inauguration Day, that number has doubled. Homeland Security Chief John Kelly told an interviewer just this week that he's, quote, only targeting criminals with multiple convictions. But a woman in the Cincinnati suburbs is being deported this week, even though she hasn't broken any laws since arriving in the U.S., and her deportation has separated Maribel Diaz from her three-year-old daughter with special needs. Aside from being the girl's mother, Maribel is specially trained to care for her special needs child, who, by the way, is a U.S. citizen. Maribel has lived in the U.S. peacefully for the past 15 years and was her family's only breadwinner. She also has a 14-year-old son. No word on what will happen to the kids. Despite Maribel's training, despite compassion, the Trump administration has booted her out of the country with no criminal record, much less any convictions. And she knows no one in Mexico. Maribel, despite never missing a check-in with immigration, has been tossed out of her life and ripped from her family, and even a court of appeals refused to stop this. She was immediately whisked away to a detention center in Louisiana, even without a chance to say goodbye to her babies. And Maribel is not alone. The number of broken families left behind could total in the millions. Certainly, millions are living in fear, even after being told they have nothing to fear. I respect that we are a country of laws, said one protester, but added, it's not justice anymore when it's ripping families apart. And now, immigration has deported a man who was supposedly protected under the DREAM Act, a group of people Trump had said would not be deported. 23-year-old Juan Montez came here when he was nine years old. Quoting him, I miss my job, I miss my school, but most of all, I miss my family. Homeland Security says Juan didn't keep his papers up to date. Yet another Trump executive order may be overridden by yet another federal court. A district judge in Northern California has started hearing a case against Trump's order to cut off federal funding to U.S. cities, counties, and states that give sanctuary to undocumented residents. Government lawyers who got their marching orders from that Trump order opened their case by arguing that the new president's order doesn't really do anything more than laws already on the books. What is this executive order about then, asked the judge. Like the cities that sued over Trump's Muslim ban, over a dozen municipalities are now suing over his punishment for sanctuary cities. The punishment would be heaped upon hundreds of places across the U.S., including New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and L.A., these cities have generally used those threatened federal dollars for giving food and health care to the poor. And these cities prevailed over Trump in court, fighting his two attempts at a Muslim ban. As in those cases, this judge says he'll weigh the arguments for both sides, but will also consider what Trump has said on the campaign trail. They hope to have the same success with his plan to punish these so-called sanctuary cities. The Trump administration's case is already in trouble right out of the gate with the judge's question that if his executive order doesn't bring anything to the table, not already on the books, what is this order about then? An update now on Trump's plan to wall off Mexico. He's promised to build a wall a thousand miles long. So far, he has enough money to build seven miles of that. When it comes to funding, the wall is seven miles down, 933 miles to go. 
Estimates put the cost of the entire wall at $20 billion. The Border Patrol's only managed to scrape together $20 million of that. It could get the rest of the money from Congress, if Congress was in any kind of mood to give it. Congress is not in the mood for that. Democrats are against funding the wall at any cost. Republicans are opposed to spending money they promised their constituents they wouldn't spend. House Speaker Paul Ryan has refused to put wall money into the Republican budget proposal this year. And even if Congress reversed course, actual construction of the wall would still be at least two years away. And Trump hasn't asked for just any wall. He's asked for a beautiful wall, something pleasing to the eye, possibly driving up the price even more. So Border Patrol has already started taking bids on eight model walls, and the awarding of contracts is set for this summer, whether there's money for it or not. Now there are three. Now there are three men on Arkansas's execution to-do list. Five of the eight executions that state was planning to carry out this month have been stayed, including two that were set for Monday of this week and two that were set for today. But three still remain. And unless something else happens, three are still scheduled to die. Arkansas says it's ready for this. Eight, five, three. It says it can handle this many executions. But is it ready? Can it handle this unprecedented assembly line killing? Can it even handle one? The main drug to be used in Arkansas's three-drug cocktail has been involved in four botched executions in other states. And the company that makes midazolam says the drug was acquired by Arkansas illegally and that the drug wasn't meant to be used in executions. Arkansas has no one with any experience in putting inmates to death because it's been so long since Arkansas even tried and they've never used midazolam before. Arkansas hasn't terminated the life of a prisoner in over 12 years, and yet it wanted to try to kill eight in 10 days. Even Oklahoma, where they love the death penalty, thinks this is a bad idea. Oklahoma's botched execution led it to believe it's a mistake to try to do two in one day, much less two a day over four days inside a 10-day period. No state has ever tried to execute that many people in such a short period of time. And yet Arkansas continues to forge ahead where it can. And now, what's all this about Turkey? Turkey is a sketchy ally for the U.S., but a vitally important one. The Turkish government is a significant partner for us at NATO. Turkey is strategically important, providing air bases for our troops fighting ISIS. Turkey has been very helpful in fighting ISIS. And here's why we should know that context. Turkey's president appears to have just cheated his way back into office, according to election observers at the European Union. The Trump administration has strong ties. Trump himself has business deals with the president of Turkey, even if President Erdogan is being viewed by the world as a dictator. It was Erdogan who wanted the Trump Tower that now stands in Istanbul, where Trump has other business interests. And it's Erdogan's government that had an agent in the U.S., now, about that agent and more from the Realm Network host of The Bob Seska Show and a respected writer for Salon.com, Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. Back in March, major news outlets reported on a story that, on the surface, seemed insane. Former CIA director James Woolsey alleged that he attended a meeting in September 2016 with officials from Turkey and Donald Trump's foreign policy mentor, Mike Flynn. 
Woolsey said he arrived to the meeting late, and when he walked in, he was shocked to hear Flynn and the Turkish government stooges discussing how best to kidnap an American citizen and Turkish cleric Fatula Gulen. Once Gulen was successfully nabbed, the group said, they plotted to send Gulen back to his native Turkey to face punishment by the autocratic president there, Tayyip Erdogan. It turns out Erdogan believes Gulen was responsible for a botched coup attempt against Erdogan last summer. If you've been following the Russiagate story, you might already be familiar with Erdogan. Among other things, Mike Flynn is being paid by Erdogan through a third party to function as a consultant, a gig he only recently acknowledged by registering as a foreign agent. Erdogan is also incrementally rounding up dissidents, journalists, and political opponents under the coup pretext. And this week, Erdogan appears to have successfully augmented his presidential powers via a referendum. This referendum, among other things, greatly diminishes the influence and power of Turkey's parliament. It also eliminates the nation's prime minister while significantly empowering the office of the presidency. All good news for Erdogan, who's actively consolidating his despotic control over all aspects of the Turkish government, including the military and the judiciary. Specifically, the referendum changes the following, according to the BBC. One, the role of prime minister will be scrapped. The new post of vice president, possibly two or three, will be created. Two, the president becomes the head of the executive as well as the head of state and retains ties to a political party. Three, he or she will be given sweeping new powers to appoint ministers, prepare the budget, choose the majority of senior judges, and enact certain laws by decree. Four, the president alone will be able to announce a state of emergency and to dismiss Parliament. Number five, Parliament will lose its right to scrutinize ministers or propose an inquiry. However, it will be able to begin impeachment proceedings or investigate the president with a majority of votes by MPs, that's members of Parliament. Putting the president on trial would require a two-thirds majority. Number six, the number of MPs will increase from 550 to 600. And number seven, presidential and parliamentary elections will be held on the same day every five years. The president will be limited to two terms. This might sound similar to the U.S. presidential system, but it's worth noting that Article 2 of our Constitution, outlining the parameters of our chief executive, is a rare success story. Most of the time, presidential systems in other nations end in some form of dictatorship, with strong men like Erdogan incrementally seizing more and more power as they go. As of this writing, the vote on the referendum is leading in Erdogan's direction with about 51% of the vote. Erdogan declared victory, nevertheless, on Monday, an act that was followed closely by... Yes, a congratulatory phone call from Donald Trump. The 45-minute call, according to the White House, wasn't the first time Trump legitimized the increasingly dictatorial rule of Erdogan. Back in July, following the coup attempt, Trump said of Erdogan, quote, I give him great credit for being able to turn that around, unquote. It's unclear why Trump would call to congratulate an autocrat for successfully curtailing democratic rights, though we can take a guess as to why Trump did what he did. By now, it's more than obvious that Trump is attracted to strongman dictator types. You might recall how Trump praised the Philippine president, Rodrigo Duterte, after a crackdown on drug users that left 4,500 people murdered or executed there. Trump said of Duterte, quote, he did the right thing. While certain media outlets are attempting to either legitimize Trump or to downplay his potential treasonous collusion with Russia to hijack our elections, it's more crucial now than ever to keep a close eye on which overseas dictators Trump is palling around with. He's either learning from his buddies, or he's offering U.S. support in their endeavors, or both. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Catch his show here Tuesday and Thursday evenings, The Bob Seska Show, at realmnetwork.com. 
Amid calls for a more transparent government, the Trump White House has decided to go the other way and become more secretive. For eight years, with rare exceptions, the Obama White House published its visitor logs, which included about six million names. Anyone from taxpayers to reporters could see who was coming and going and speculate the visitor's impact on presidential policy. No more. The Trump White House has tightly clamped shut the lid on that information. The White House communications director says the order came from Trump himself, who believes the log should be kept from the voters and the press because of, quote, grave national security risks and privacy concerns. The Obama White House redacted some names from its visitors' log in the interest of national security, but in the Trump White House, we wouldn't see the comings and goings of business or political groups either. Trump's logs won't be released until after he leaves office. Government watchdog groups are now suing the Trump White House over this new secrecy. Quoting one group, Given the many issues we have already seen in this White House, with conflicts of interest, outside influence, and potential ethics violations, transparency is more important than ever, adding, We had no choice but to sue. Democrats failed to win a congressional seat in Kansas during that district's recent special election to replace Mike Pompeo, who had left that seat vacant to head Trump's CIA. But Democrats did come very close. In a district that voted Trump by nearly a 30% margin last fall, the Democrats came within single-digit points of winning. In Georgia this week, another special election to replace another Trump appointee, Former Congressman Tom Price is now Trump's Health and Human Services Secretary, and we'd normally expect him to be replaced by another Republican in that strongly Republican district. But it may not work out that way. In an all-candidates race on Tuesday, the Democrat, John Ossoff, won the most votes. But because no candidate got 50% of the vote or more, the top two vote-getters will now face off in one more election. So it'll be Democrat John Ossoff versus Republican Karen Handel, in a district that hasn't voted Democratic in nearly 40 years, the same district that brought us Newt Gingrich. Donald Trump immediately took credit for Ossoff's failure to get 50% of the vote, tweeting, glad to be of help. Trump is also likely to get the blame if Ossoff wins that runoff election as Republicans lose their grip on the voters of Georgia's 6th district and in Kansas's 4th district and in red states across the country. Thanks. To Donald Trump. Bill O'Reilly is history, more unfriendly skies at United, and news from outer space in the third and final segment up next. It is very, very important that you show your support for this newscast by doing as much of your shopping as possible through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You'll land right on your very own Amazon page and get the same great prices as always. If you believe in what I'm doing here, what we're doing together, it's extremely important that you go to buzzburbank.com, click on that link, and then bookmark the page to make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or you're shopping Amazon for the first time, going through that link, even just once, helps sustain this program. Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door in two days or less for Prime members. I can't say enough about how much I enjoy Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership, along with music and books and more. And please, use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. To those of you who already shopped through my link, thank you. And if Amazon's not right for you, 
You can also support this program by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. Fox News Channel has cooked the goose that laid the golden egg. Fox has fired Bill O'Reilly amid sexual harassment allegations. O'Reilly has made billions of dollars for the Murdoch family empire by having the top show on cable. His ratings were still phenomenal right up to the day last week when he left for what he said would be a two-week vacation. But nearly a hundred sponsors had pulled their ads from his show. It stopped making money, and making money is what a business like the Fox News Channel is all about. O'Reilly was due to return to his show this coming Monday, but because the money had dried up and because the Murdochs were facing an ugly board meeting today, they moved yesterday to cut their losses and Bill O'Reilly. The New York Times recently reported that O'Reilly and Fox had silenced five women accusing O'Reilly of inappropriate behavior by settling their lawsuits out of court for $13 million. The women included staff members and guests of the show. O'Reilly, who says he paid the settlements to spare his children, is vacationing in Italy and this week shook hands with the Pope. This report drops on April 20th, also now known as 420 Day. There are multiple accounts of how 420 came to symbolize the casual use of marijuana, but it's also become a symbol of the drive to decriminalize the plant. And a new survey shows that for the first time, 61% of the American people now favor that decriminalization. 52% of us have at least tried it during our lives. A new Marist poll says 44% of adults still use it today, even though the federal government's laws put it on the same danger level as heroin. Americans disagree, most saying pot is far safer than the opioids that have now become a nationwide epidemic. The survey says 8 in 10 of us support legalizing medical marijuana, with 49% of us favoring its legalization for recreational use. Weed is now legal in 8 states and D.C., and a majority of states now offer it for medical use. The Canadian government, under young Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, has started keeping its promise to legalize marijuana by 2018. The liberal Canadian government took the first step in that direction this past week by announcing the plan. The rollout would include decriminalizing possession of an ounce or less and the growing of up to four plants. It would allow dealers to register with the government agreeing to sell only to people over the age of 19, which is the legal drinking age, and to not target young people in their advertising. Dosages and serving sizes would be standardized. The plan would also make tougher the impaired driving laws to satisfy those concerned about toking and driving. Police would carry saliva tests to detect THC in erratic drivers and those involved in accidents. Still being debated is whether it will be legal to smoke weed in public in Canada or where the dispensaries will be allowed and where they won't, along with how all this will be enforced. Canada's medical marijuana system already in place wouldn't be affected. It will continue to allow delivery of up to five ounces direct to patients' homes. Target date for the plan to go into effect, July 2018. And it was another rough week for United Airlines. Since last week's spoke, competitor Delta took advantage and announced it would offer up to $10,000 to passengers who allowed themselves to be bumped from overbooked flights. That's nearly 10 times what Delta had previously offered, and it authorized gate agents to pay up to 2000 per seat in cases that were once limited to 800 bucks. 
800 is what Dr. David Dow was offered by United Airlines after he'd already boarded that United plane from which he was ultimately dragged, bloodied, and beaten. United, which is now facing a huge lawsuit from Dow, stepped up in its own way. United announced this week it'll stop removing passengers to shuttle employees, and employees that do fly must reserve their seat at least an hour ahead of time instead of being able to simply walk on board forcing out a booked passenger. But United's week still didn't get any better. We learned that on the same day of the dragging of Dr. Dow, a United passenger was reportedly stung by a scorpion that had dropped from the overhead luggage bin onto his head. United flight attendants quickly captured the scorpion and flushed it down one of the plane's toilets. They also made sure a medical crew met the passenger at the arrival gate. The passenger's wife won't say how, but she says United did make it right. Still, United was in the news again, this time on account of a scorpion. And then United was back in the news this week after kicking a couple off a flight. They were on their way to meet friends in Costa Rica where they had planned to get married. The plane was half empty, everyone had already boarded, and someone was sleeping across their assigned seat, so the couple moved to another row. As it turns out, the row they chose cost a little more than the seats they'd been assigned. When confronted about that, the couple offered to pay for the upgrade, but the United flight attendants refused. The couple returned to their assigned seats. And then a U.S. Marshal appeared to escort the couple off the plane. United says the couple had repeatedly refused to obey crew instruction, which the couple denies. United did rebook the couple for a flight the next day, but for Michael and his fiancée, Amber, it was too little too late. They said they would find another airline, and they did. Michael and Amber are in Costa Rica right now, getting married today. Being rich and having a team of clever attorneys may keep you out of jail for a while. Remember affluenza teen Ethan Couch? At the age of 16, Master Couch got drunk, got behind the wheel of a car, and killed four people. His clever lawyers, with the help of a paid psychologist, persuaded the jury that Ethan was himself a victim of a previously unheard-of condition they called affluenza, the lack of understanding right or wrong due to a privileged upbringing. The lawyers kept young Mr. Couch out of prison, landing him a 10-year probation instead in which he was to avoid drugs and alcohol. Having affluenza, Ethan Couch was unable to comply, a video surfaced showing him at a party involving beer pong. The mother, who had coddled Ethan all his life, ran with him to Mexico, but then to the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico, where they were arrested. After four years, Ethan was finally in prison where he has been ever since. His expensive lawyers filed appeal after appeal, asking he be released, only to be turned down last week by the Texas State Supreme Court. Ethan Couch is in prison, and for now, that's where he'll stay, and perhaps overcome his affluenza. Do you feel stressed, anxious, depressed? Do you feel hopeless? If you do, you're not alone. A new study estimates that more than 8 million adults, about 3.5% of the U.S. population, suffers from serious psychological distress. Quoting the top researcher at NYU Med Center, mental illness is on the rise, suicide is on the rise, and access to care for the mentally ill is getting worse. Experts suspect it's a hangover from the Great Recession, which continues for many. But the experts say that trauma left long-term damage even for those who've recovered and that many people can't afford to get help or because they're so debilitated by their condition they don't try to get help. 
NYU's top researcher says insurance companies should pay for mental health and that that part of health should be part of everyone's overall medical care. We're just over a week away from the official end of flu season, and we learned something interesting this year. Mostly it was like any other year, except for who it hit hardest. Usually, as you've heard, it hits the very young and the very old, the very hardest. But this year was different. This year it was middle-aged people. Down from its usual 100, we lost 72 children to the flu this year, but we lost even more middle-aged people. The flu has killed as many as 49,000 people in this country in a given year, and it puts nearly a quarter million of us into hospitals each year, many of those cases evolving into pneumonia. Experts say this year's flu vaccine reduced a person's chance of getting the flu by 50 to 60 percent. This year's cases are now dwindling in number as we approach the end of the season, but experts advise caution to people traveling to the southern hemisphere where the flu season is just getting started. And maybe having a bit of a nanny state isn't so bad after all. New research finds that in U.S. cities that put limits on the amount of trans fats in foods, there are now fewer heart attacks and strokes. Trans fats appear in fast food and junk foods, cupcakes, chips, crackers, and many things that are fried. Those local laws have forced restaurants to watch what they serve and vendors to watch what they put in their vending machines. And in a half dozen New York counties, strokes and heart attacks were down 6%. There's no proof yet of cause and effect. All we have for now is the facts. Maybe we could live on one of Saturn's moons. That's not a suggestion, it's just new science. We already know there's water on the Saturn moon called Enceladus, and unfortunately a lot of ice. But it also has all the right chemicals to host life. Carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen. Scientists call it a candy store for microbes. NASA's Cassini probe just learned more about Saturn's moons and that they could both sustain life. Finding life wasn't Cassini's mission, but it may have found it on Enceladus and its sister moon, Europa. NASA is now preparing a new mission to learn more about Saturn's two moons. And in a galaxy far, far away, there's a solar system that revolves around two stars. And since our sun is a star, it's a solar system with two suns, just like the fabled Tatooine, where the fictional Luke Skywalker was born. This twin solar system is Kepler-35, and it only has one planet, but it's a big one, about eight times bigger than Earth. New research suggests that being the only planet in a system and having two suns might make it more likely inhabitable by humans, at least at certain locations. But like Tatooine, much of this planet is desert with two sunsets nightly. Michigan's Cheryl Wassis is a good person. She owns a licensed therapy dog, which she volunteers to help U.S. military veterans through a program called Pets for Vets. Last week, to help spread the word, Cheryl decided to go to an event at the local Sheraton Hotel, and she thought that would be a business convention for the pet industry and for people who own pets. Best of all, the convention had chosen Pets for Vets as its official charity. Cheryl tried to research it, but the convention's website didn't explain much at all, so she just went. Cheryl figured she and her Bernese mountain dog named Link would enjoy something called Furry Con. Not everyone knows what a Furry Con is. It's a convention of people who find 
sexual gratification dressing up as plush stuffed animals. Boy, was she surprised. And so was Link, who she says seemed to be confused by seeing humans with tails that Link was eager to sniff. But all's well that ends well. Cheryl says she found the experience enlightening and amazing. And that furry con in Navi, Michigan raised $10,000 for Pets for Vets. Next time you're in Wisconsin, try the fried cheese, a semi carrying 20,000 pounds of Velveeta and other Kraft cheese-like products went up in flames near an office max in West Allis, Wisconsin yesterday. The driver had pulled over to try to put out the fire himself, but failing in that effort, disconnected the cab from the trailer and called the fire department. Firefighters used a front-end loader like a can opener so they could spray water into the trailer since that shipment of cheese-like substances was packed so tightly. No one got hurt, and the damage was limited to the trailer and its contents. Quoting the assistant fire chief in West Allis, the combination of cheese and diesel fuel made for a pretty hot fire, adding, it's very difficult once the cheese gets going. And finally, if you think you're having a bad day, just know it could get worse. Ask Gracie Henderson of New Caney, Texas, who was having one of those days. A water pipe busted in the wall the day I moved in, says Gracie. I got my car stuck in the mud in the front yard. My brand new lawnmower stopped working. And then last week, the toilet clogged and Gracie had no plunger, naturally. So she stuck her hand through that big hole at the bottom of the bowl and then her wrist looking for that clog. She didn't find the clog, but she did discover that because of the wristwatch she was still wearing, she was stuck in that hole. Fortunately, she was able to reach and use her cell phone with her free hand. Firefighters arrived to free her other hand, and Gracie's friend Nicole shot video with a phone camera. The firefighters may have fixed the clog by freeing the toilet from its floor bolts and carrying it and Gracie into that muddy front yard where they busted the porcelain to release Gracie. Now Gracie has to buy a new toilet. Naturally. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening. And thank you for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.